Welcome to Get Down to College Business. We will identify strategies that could make the difference between keeping university doors open and closing them for good. I'm pulling in business experts and higher ed leaders to debate the merits of strategies that could save the future of higher ed. I'm your host, Sarah Holton, PhD. Let's get down to college business. Hi, everyone. This is Sarah Holton and your host. I'm joined today by Kate Colbert, author of Commencement, The Beginning of a New Era in Higher Education. She co-authored the book with Dr. Joe Salustio, and that was largely based on insights from interviews with over 125 college and university presidents. Commencement has been heralded by Forbes as the indispensable touchpoint of what's being said and around higher education. It's also been featured on media outlets around the world. A marketer by trade, Kate also authored the book, Think Like a Marketer, How to Shift in Mindset Can Change Everything for Your Business. Kate is president of Silver Tree Communications, where she specializes in conducting market research for colleges and universities. She also coaches higher education leaders. Her view is holistic. She sees everything from the top of the mountain all the way down into the weeds. So I'm excited today to pick her brain about the hard lessons we've learned in higher ed from 2023 and her very bold predictions for 2024. Welcome, Kate. Thanks so much for having me. Let's start with what we learned in 2023. I see it as a year of closures. The higher ed dive reported that 26 United States colleges and universities closed or they announced their closures in 2023. More are likely on the horizon this year. And if I had to summarize this last year, I would spotlight the closures and the financial strain on schools, particularly smaller schools. How would you describe the year? Yeah, I think you're right to highlight the closures. And I think the closures are a way for us to understand so many things that are happening in higher education right now. 2023 had a lot of themes, I think, for me. In an industry overbuilt in terms of infrastructure, think about towns you know that have a community college and a private college and a state university campus. We're an industry that is overbuilt in terms of infrastructure, thus all the closings that you're seeing and the right-sizing of higher education. And it's an industry also that's been over-reliant upon what I think is an outmoded and what the data is now showing is an outmoded focus on serving full-time residential undergraduate students aged 18 to 23 with a traditional coming-of-age college experience. I think 2023 was the year that we got really honest with ourselves in higher education. It was the year that higher ed itself began to come of age. And I think it was the year that, as it were, we got down to college business, right? It's the year that we started having real talk about things that we had never talked about before. So we've started truly caring about affordability and access and flexibility. We started blowing up and upending the very trappings of our industry, like the agrarian schedule with summers off and traditional grades with no proof of skills learned or competencies mastered. So I think in 2023, we learned that it was important to start treating students as VIP customers, even though I remember, you know, working inside higher ed when I used words like business or I talked about students as customers. I mean, I literally like got yelled at early in my career at presence who would freak out as if I committed some sort of crime, right? Um, But in 2023, I think the schools that are really growing and serving their stake well have understood that students are VIP customers. I I mean, to that point, my co-author, Dr. Joe Salustio said it best when he said, quote, education is a business 
business and students are consumers, if you don't understand that, you've already lost. And I think he's right. And so for me, as I look back on this past year, and I had the opportunity because we were on book tour to be out there at a lot of higher ed conferences and and sort of see what, what people were talking about and what they were doing on different campuses, I think 2023 was the year of truth telling in higher education. And I'd like to think that books like mine, which is honest and raw and bold and hopefully a little humorous and whatnot. It's both a love letter to higher ed and a devil's advocate. I hope that it contributed to that honesty and candor. And I think that podcasts like yours, and of course, the Ed Up Experience podcast, which was the basis for the presidential insights for the book, are a huge part of this honest, inspiring conversation that I think will continue long into the future. I really like how you phrase that, that 2023 was the year that higher ed got honest with itself. But I want to challenge that just a little bit, because I think there's sort of this early adopters or this first wave that we're seeing, but I'm still hearing about almost a resistance to change. And so what do you think about that, that maybe we're partially there, but maybe maybe not all the way there? Well, I think at the end of the day, the only stakeholders for whom the truth needs to matter is the customer, right? So the institutions that are still lying to themselves, and whether you're an admissions manager or the president of a university, if you're not focusing on what matters, and you're not fixing what's broken at your institution, you're not skating to where the puck, you know, is going to quote Wayne Gretzky's uncle, right? So the customers, the students, the learners are going to say, I'm not interested, right? I mean, we just got through the Christmas holidays here. And my nephew, who's 20, was at our house for the holidays and was talking about the program that he's in. And he's doing this really cool program where he's getting on the job training as an apprentice and earning his associate's degree at the same time and getting paid, doesn't have any tuition, right? And then has a contract locked in for a job when it's all over, right? And he has a choice with his classes at the community college for his associate's degree. Do you want to drive to the college to sit in a classroom or do you want to do this online? And he's like, listen, I'm tired and I do a lot of running around between the lab stuff and the, you know, and he's like, so if I have a choice to do it online, of course, I'm going to do it online. And and it was really obvious in talking to him that if those modality choices for him were not an option, he would never have been interested in this. Right. And so, so I think that, yes, there was a book that just came out and I'm going to forget the author's name, but it it's sort of a, it was about faculty in higher ed and the title is something to, to the effect of whatever it is I'm against it it's sort of the title of the whatever book. it is I'm against it yeah that's exactly yeah it, right and so and and I laughed when I saw that because I thought oh my gosh like I get that and I worked inside higher ed for a long time and and in many ways I was guilty of being resistant to change too we had our ways of doing things and and so but here's what I will tell you about that truth telling it happens in pockets. So Joe and I have been going around the country and we've been doing these cool sessions that we call Real Talk. And we have people, we ask a question and we have all these like little three by five cards, like recipe cards, index cards on the table. And we ask people to write down the answer to a question they would never admit their true answer to in public, right? So like, what's what's the one thing you've always wanted to say about leadership in higher ed? Or what's preventing your institution from making the leap and excelling in online learning? or Whatever those types of questions are. And we have them write those down and then they stand up and they walk walk over to another table during their networking breakfast or whatever we're doing, and they drop them off at someone else's table. And then we bring microphones around the room and people stand up and read cards that they have no idea who wrote them. So we can't point a finger. We don't know what institution it came from. And and we do these real talk sessions and they are 
cathartic for people who work in higher education and they are revealing. And we are seeing really clear themes. And one of the biggest themes we are hearing from people who work at every level of higher education is that higher education is in many ways kidding itself about things that they are afraid to talk about. And so what I'm finding as I work with folks at the highest levels, you know, where I work with presidents and CMOs and whatnot, the schools where somebody has dared to walk into a boardroom and tell the truth about the problems they're having at their institution or tell the truth about the needs of their students or to tell the truth about the innovations that would really crack things wide open for them. Those are the institutions that are starting to do really, really well. Those are the institutions that five years from now, when you and I are chatting about this again, they will not have closed. And so, yes, there is massive resistance to change in higher education, but the institutions that are saying, okay, let's just like get down to business. Let's really talk turkey here. Those are the institutions that are really at the bleeding edge of higher ed. And I think we're going to get to a point where folks who won't tell the truth, the evidence is all around us. I live in, you know, just south of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and my husband's alma mater, Cardinal Stritch University, closed its doors this past, past year with very little notice, like a matter of weeks notice. They were literally walking prospective students around campus giving tours that afternoon at three o'clock in the afternoon and at five o'clock announced they were closing. Don't tell me there wasn't a whole lot of lying going on all the way up until that five o'clock moment. And that's not going to stand for very long. Those institutions will continue to close, but folks who start telling the truth when things are tough, when there's an opportunity to change, that's where really amazing things will be able to happen. So it sounds like that awareness piece was one of the lessons from 2023, really kind of breaking things open. Progressive schools are saying, hey, here's what we need to fix. Have you noticed any other lessons from 2023? If you would highlight those for us, that'd be great. Yeah, absolutely. I think that there were a lot of lessons in 2023, but I would say that there are maybe five that we should really take to heart. So so for me, the first lesson is that everyone is a learner. And I think student is the wrong word. Um, I think learner is the right word because it's not just about backpacks and briefcases anymore. It's so much more than that. This past year, I think, has shown us that it's time to redefine higher education's customer and understand that everything beyond high school is post-secondary education. In fact, I actually prefer the term post-secondary education to higher education, right? The higher education leaves a lot of people sort of at arm's distance. I think we've learned that anybody who wants to learn something is a learner. And so educational enterprises, whether those are colleges, universities, for-profit, nonprofit, executive training, corporate education organizations, professional associations where we go to conferences and learn a lot from them, and other entities that help people over the age of 18 to gain new knowledge, skills, attitudes, habits for work and life. Those institutions need to meet learners where they are and offer them precisely what they need. And not just what they need, not just the educational experience that that they're looking for, but when they need it, where they need it, how they need it, and a cost that fits their budget. And by the way, students today want to be able to say, I want to go from being an on-campus student to an online student, and I'd like to make that switch next week. And I don't want to lose any progress, and I don't want to have to take any time off, and I don't want it to cost me anything extra. And the schools that can do that, that are that nimble are the schools that are succeeding. So But everyone is a learner. So I think our definitions of, quote unquote, being a college student, right, or, quote unquote, going back to college, I think that is changing. And I think that is a really good thing. I think the pursuit of learning is becoming less daunting and more doable or accessible for everyone. And so I think for me, that was one of the big lessons of this past year is that everyone is a learner. A second lesson from 2023 um, for me is that if cash is king 
in business and life, then accessibility and affordability are everything in higher education. So one of my favorite people to talk to in the higher education world is Dr. Malik Peter Corey, who's the president of Unity Environmental University in Maine. And he told us when we interviewed him for our book, um, and I'm going to quote him directly. He said, in 1965, we decided in America that every student deserves an education, but took a model only designed for the 1% and tried to mass produce it. And it's failing and we're surprised. And I really love the candor. I mean, if you want to talk to somebody candid in higher education, like put Malik on your show. I mean, it's phenomenal. But think about that for a minute. So he's right. Like this past year, as we watched which colleges grew and which colleges closed their doors forever, right? And we saw really clearly, I think, which institutions uh, that, that when an institution isn't affordable or accessible, when they don't understand what learners need and want, and they don't understand that that you can't push people away who want to become your customer by saying, oh, you're not the right fit for us, or we don't like your entrance exam score or whatever, that's just not going to make it in this new era of higher education. I mean, if you think about that, like, can you imagine, Sarah, like if you went shopping for a hoodie on Amazon, or you went to go buy a hybrid vehicle at a car lot, and you were told that, oh, you know, yes, there are plenty of hoodies available and plenty of cars available, but, but well, I mean, Sarah, I mean, you might not be the right fit for us. Have you thought about that other store or car lot down the street? Or, you know, I mean, hoodies aren't for everyone, right? Cars are not for everyone. I mean, could you imagine what it would be like to be a consumer for any other product or service other than higher education and have folks literally pride themselves on the fact that they can only serve an intimate group of 1,200 customers a year? It doesn't make any sense, right? And I think that the industry is having, there's a reckoning around that, understanding that accessibility and affordability, which makes accessibility also possible, is everything in higher ed. So that that I think is the second theme of the year. The third theme for me is tied to this lesson about accessibility and affordability. And I think it's a big lesson about the value of a college education and the death of elitism in higher education. And so, you know, listen, I came of age in the higher education space, getting my own college degrees, four of them that I racked up over time, believing that the, you know, elite school, that there was a difference between a $13,000 a year and a $50,000 a year bachelor's degree program. And ultimately, we know that that's not true, right? That's what accreditors are for. Um, For the most part, accreditors ensure parity across academic programs, across institutions. So it really is all about brand. It really is all about experience, right? Um, But ultimately, academically, you're getting the same thing. And so earlier this month, probably a few weeks ago, call it three weeks ago, the editors at LinkedIn reached out to me and asked me to weigh in on a topic that prior to this year or last year, I can't actually even imagine being asked. So they they contacted me and said they wanted to know, will students bother to save for college in 2024? And if you think my answer was, of course, there's no amount of money for a good education that's not worth it, bring on the debt. You're wrong. That's not what I said. Honestly, if anybody were to Google the phrase value of a college education, you would be busy reading for days on end because the conversation around the value of a college education is a huge theme right now. And I think that one of the biggest lessons of 2023 was that our customers, our students, our learners, they are no longer going to blindly ignore the price tag of higher education and eagerly say, sign me up. So they're looking at our websites and our brochures and what we say during campus tours um, when we make these un believable promises. And we say a degree from XYZ University, that will help you write your own ticket in this career or in this field. Or we say the value of our alumni network is second to none, right? Those prospective students are looking us dead in the eye and they're saying, prove it. 
and most colleges and universities can't. Okay, two more themes, I think, or lessons from 2023. Lesson number four, I think, is that the only thing more important than enrollment is retention. And as a professional writer, I, I know how to spin the facts to tell various stories. And so I recognize that kind of spin when I hear it. And in these past few years, and especially this last year, a lot of higher education leaders have actually looked me in the eye and lied to me about their enrollment situation. And they do it in a very, very casual way and in a proud way. Presidents, admissions leaders, they'll brag about, we recruited our largest freshman class in history, but they won't tell you that their overall retention is below 70% and that graduating from their institution is a coin toss at 50 50 best, you know, sort of or worse. And that's really scary, right? Um, And so retention, a lot of folks are having trouble keeping their students. And that is a huge issue right now. Others will fudge the numbers the opposite direction, by the way. So, you know, do I see it? Yes, all the time that institutions will brag about how many graduates crossed the stage at this last year's commencement ceremony, but they won't tell you that their incoming class was so small that the demand for whatever it is that their institution is offering is so small that they're going to need half as many chairs for commencement 2020. And so I'm pleased to see, and this is why this theme is so important around retention. So I don't want to be just gloom and doom about how hard it is to retain students. I'm pleased to see that a lot of institutions are doing something about it. So they're hiring directors and even vice presidents for retention. I know you just had one on your podcast from Eastern Kentucky University, right? Right. Okay. And so I think that's really important. These retention experts are invariably focusing on really important things and something that goes beyond just access and flexibility and affordability. They're trying to figure out how to ensure that their colleges and universities offer belongingness and support for their learners. And there's a big difference. So belongingness is not just diversity, equity, and inclusion. Belongingness is truly feeling like you're wanted there, right? It's not just that they opened the door for you, but that you're wanted there and that you can succeed there. And to be able to succeed, you need support. One of my favorite quotes from the Ed Up Experience podcast was something Dr. Monty Randall said. Dr. Randall is the president at the College of the Muskogee Nation. And he said something I quote all the time. And he said this, access without support is not opportunity. And I think that's a really huge lesson for us. And I've been seeing that play out in higher education right now. And I would say the fifth lesson, fifth theme or lesson from 2023 is that partnerships are the future of higher education. And so, of course, mergers and acquisitions, and you've talked about that on the show, and even more creative opportunities than that. But it's also really unique, interesting partnerships that are at the program level. So there's big partnerships. We look at something like Western Governors University and their relationship with the KFC Foundation, right? So if I'm want to go get a job working um, at my local KFC, I can get a college education um, for free. That's huge, right? So there's those kinds of partnerships, but there are also really creative partnerships. And I think I'm at liberty to talk about this. I was talking the other day to Dr. Philly Mantella, the president over at Grand Valley State University, who I also worked with when she was at Northeastern University. And Grand Valley State is doing a really interesting thing there in Michigan. And they partnered with a local health system, their big health system in the area, who is really struggling with the nursing shortage. And so they had shared that they're paying like a $40,000 premium to be able to hire travel nurses from sort of outside the region to come into their region, right? Well, 40 grand per nurse is a lot of money. And so they sat down with the university and said like, well, what else could we spend that 40 grand on that would last better and that we don't have to pay per nurse every year? And so I may be getting the details wrong on this. And my apologies to Dr. Mandela and Grand Valley and the, the health system if I'm getting this wrong. 
but they're doing something to the effect of essentially saying, well, what if the health system agrees for every nursing student that comes into Grand Valley that they'll pay a $20,000 scholarship per year to that student? And when that nurse graduates, if they come, they will come work for that health system and they will give them like a $20,000 signing bonus or a $20,000, whatever that t- turns out. So they're essentially still spending $40,000 per new nurse but they're getting brand new trained nurses who are committed to working for them for a period of time post-graduation, and they're doing it in a really interesting way. And so those kinds of partnerships are starting to crop up. We also found it really interesting, Joe and I did, when we did the research for commencement, we asked for a lot of truth-telling. So we did, in addition to all the interviews, we did some survey work and it was anonymous. So that helped with the truth-telling. And our research showed that 45% of higher ed leaders say that their institutions are currently exploring or are considering the exploration of a merger acquisition or significant strategic partnership to improve the value of what they offer and access for prospective learners and to ensure their institution's viability. And so I think these partnerships are really a huge um, part of what's happening um, in higher education. So those are my big five from 2023. Let me see if I can summarize those five, but put them into operational format. So it sounds like First and foremost, it has to start with leadership being aware and then willing to change. We can be aware, but not be willing to change how we do things. So they have to be aware, willing to change. They have to empower change among the ranks of those who are executing the operations. And then also they have to have the actual business operations be nimble enough to be able to implement those changes. Did I summarize the operationalism of this? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. What common patterns do you see in schools that seem to struggle? Yeah. So you were actually just getting exactly at the answer to this question, right? So you're talking about like, how do you operationalize this stuff, right? So in order to be better and to serve students and learners in the way that they want to be served and deserve to be served right now, how do we do that? How do we make that work? And it really starts with the right governance model. And I would say most colleges and universities have the wrong governance model. And so among schools that struggle, I'm looking at a school, right? So there are, you know, I mean, you know, I, I know you've had Gary Stocker from College Viability on the show, and and he has these unbelievable sort of metrics that you can look at, right, for an institution and know whether it's kind of on the bubble. And that data is fantastic. I use that all the time, by the way. <laughs> but when I take a look at sort of beyond the number of what's happening, how are they behaving, what's happening at these institutions, or what defines them, or what do they look like? Um, I think there's a few different things. So governance models that give faculty more power than the leaders that actually run the enterprise is a problem. I see that among institutions that are struggling when those governance models really sort of reinforce that. And so there are different governance models that are really working in higher ed, and, and we can talk about an example of that. But, you know, these governance models that create assimilation cultures where everybody feels like even if they're new and they just got hired and they came in with all these fresh ideas, that they have to just assimilate and and just, you know, but that's how we've always done it, right? And they assimilate to what was already happening at that institution. So their brilliant new ideas and fresh perspectives are not being used. And And those governance models reinforce the fear of change. So I always look at these kinds of questions, and then I know whether an institution is likely to struggle. When we look at folks, and I was talking to a CMO I'm coaching the other day, and she was telling me they were going to be closed for the next four weeks, and I laughed, right? So why do we close for two to four weeks in December? Well, because the faculty would revolt if we didn't at most institutions. Why don't we offer as many courses in the summer as the rest of the year? Because the faculty would revolt if we did, and if we tried, right? Why aren't we building competency-based course courses at every institution um, with real world applications because our faculty would think their courses are perfect as is and don't want us to change them. 
Um, why don't all classes have guest lecturers? Why don't all classes have hands-on projects? Because that's a lot of work to coordinate and it's a lot to ask of our faculty. And at most institutions where shared governance include a faculty senate and whatnot, these ideas can be sort of dead on arrival if the faculty don't want to do it. Um, why doesn't every college student get two to three internships at every college or university in the United States? Because that's a lot of work. That's hard to operationalize. It's hard to do. So, and then at the staff ranks, right? So I don't want to beat up on faculty. I love faculty. I started my career as a faculty member. So with all due respect, I'm actually criticizing the structure of how colleges and universities typically work. But at the staff ranks, there are problems too. Why at the staff ranks do we let mediocre performers be kept for 30 years at a college or university? Because we don't fire anybody. But we also don't reward innovation at most colleges and universities. And so that's a problem. So the governance model is a huge problem at institutions that struggle. I would also say patterns at schools that struggle, if they have less than 2,500 students, they're likely to struggle, right? So if they're small with no big dreams, if they're one of these quote unquote best kept secret schools, right, they're on the bubble. If they're religiously affiliated, that is more and more leading sort of indicator of an institution's likelihood to close. So religion is losing popularity overall in the United States. And even for students who have a particular religious faith, most want education and religion uncoupled. So they want to get religion at church, temple, mosque, at home, wherever, and they want to get education, right? So we live in an a la carte world and they want to get education at the university. And incidentally, we see this in other industries too. So we see this in, in healthcare. So it was very common when, you know, I'm about to turn 50. When I was growing up, it was very common for the local hospitals in any major city or region to be affiliated, to be a St. Something's college, right? To be affiliated with a church. We have a health system here in Kenosha, Wisconsin, that was called St. Catherine's Hospital. They were recently acquired by Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin. And, um, and I remember saying to my husband when I saw the new sign go up, though they haven't taken the cross off the top of the building, but when I saw the sign go up and I said, this is what I'm looking for as a patient, I said, I want more science and less religion in my medicine. And that's happening as well. And so there are big institutions that are religiously affiliated. You take a look at a, an institution like DePaul in Chicago that will probably okay, be okay for a while because they're the largest Catholic university in the United States. They've got 20 some thousand students. But this past year, they're facing a 53 million dollar budget shortfall, right? How do you cope with that? So religiously affiliated institutions are struggling. They always will. I would say the fourth pattern I see among schools that are struggling is lack of business experience and financial acumen and administration. So you you essentially just said that a minute ago, right? So we need people at the top who understand how to run a business, who understand the financials and know how to do this. I think a great example where we're seeing institutions that are not struggling because they have addressed these issues, Lindenwood University, where my co-author is a, a VP, is a great example. Their president, John Porter, did not come from inside higher ed. He was an executive at IBM. And he came in and said, I know everybody told me things are going to move slowly and everything's status quo. And, and my approach to that is like, well, why? Like, it doesn't have to be that. And they just started a whole new educational system and acquired another school and they're growing and doing some interesting things. So we also did a lot of research for our book around what does the leadership skill set of the future look like? What does a new president or a president's cabinet members need to look like? And the number one thing that people told us during our research is that they're looking for leaders with financial acumen. So that's huge. The folks who lack that, their schools will struggle. And it's not just the president. You have to look at the board. I used to think that boards couldn't hurt a school because they were perfunctory and honorary and just full of wealthy and powerful donors and alum. But that's exactly why 
<laughs> they are so dangerous is because that, you know, St. Joe's in Indiana, which closed uh, a handful of years ago, is a really great example of that institution had even looked at, like, can we be acquired? Can we merge? Like, how do we save ourselves? They were literally couldn't like pay their employees. And when the board went to go vote on their closure, which they ultimately voted to do, there were members of the board, I think almost every member of the board had no idea that there had even been a discussion about a merger or acquisition to save them. And so boards that don't actually lead are a huge. Thank you for overviewing the patterns of struggling schools. Because I'm a positive poly, I also want to talk about the patterns of successful schools. So could you overview those for us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. So, oh gosh. So there's a whole lot of things that happen at successful, successful schools. So first I would say it's sort of the opposite of the, the list I just gave you, right? Around what's not working. So at successful schools, leaders are operating for the era in which they exist and not the era in which they were founded, right? So I always joke around, like we all have all these sweatshirts that say founded, you know, 1847 or whatever, right? But at the end of the day, there is not a single student in 2023 or 2024 or beyond who is looking to go to an institution with academic programs that were developed in 1847, with policies that were developed in 1847, with anything that was in 1847. So leaders who really understand the era in which we exist and the way that learners are looking to learn and what they're looking to purchase from us is really, really important. Those institutions are successful. I am also seeing that it often comes down, at it, well, it always comes down to who we hire, who we train and who we promote to run the institution. And it's not just the president, even though I love talking about presidents. So a really smart sort of people strategy, a smart HR strategy at a college or university matters. I think your chief people officer at a college or university, frankly, is more important important than your chief academic officer. And I very infrequently find institutions that believe that. And so that's problematic, but really understanding how to have that balance, right? Do we're going to be putting people at the top of our institutions or the head of admissions or the head of marketing or these really important positions that make our institutions viable. We need to have people um, who have financial acumen, who have worked in other industries, who have customer service experience, who have expertise in marketing, enrollment, brand, and by the way, who understand higher ed, right? So I'm a big fan of hiring from outside of higher ed, but I do think there is value in people having spent 10 years inside higher ed in some capacity. And having people who we hire and put into important positions who are open-minded to new structures and new operating models is really critical. Our research for the book actually showed us that, and they have to have really strong communication skills. And when we see that, when we see really, really talented people with the kinds of talents and skills that are needed, institutions are successful. Successful schools are also growth focused right now. So they're not settling for 1200 students and they're not, they're not complacent with having the same portfolio of academic programs that they offered 10 years ago. So institutions that are successful are always looking to figure out like, where do we go next? What does the industry need from us? What does the workforce need from us? What does this country, what are our communities, what is needed of us and how do we fill those needs? And so there are, for as many schools are closing, right? And if we talk about the academic cliff, right? We don't have as many 18 year olds ready to go off to college because of a birth rate decline. There are institutions that are growing and there are institutions that are growing really, really quickly. So there's the big ones, right? You know, Western governors, you know, Arizona State, SNHU, Capella, all all the the sort of biggies, right? And by the way, lots of growth at the University of California system. There's a lot of growth in in Texas schools, Utah, um, HBCUs. So there are segments that are growing. And so those are interesting places to look who has sort of a growth mindset. I think other patterns among successful schools are true student-centered experiences. 
colleges. So colleges and universities that are doing well and that will do well as we sort of get deeper into this new era in higher education are institutions that truly put the student at the center of everything they do, that have created friction-free processes. So how, you know, how do we take out the confusion and the friction in admissions? How do we take out the friction in day-to-day the student experience? How do we think about students as customers? How do we make sure our websites and our, you know, student information systems and the portals the students use to log into things, how do we make it as intuitive as something they would choose to download on their phone or choose to spend time with? And I think that's really important. And I think, you know, the other big thing is that successful institutions right now are focused on outcomes and access. So I've always joked around and I talk about this in the book that if I were to found a college or university, that our tagline would be outcomes for everyone because it gets at exactly what really matters. It's about, and by the way, there'd be a lot of support for everyone in order to get them those outcomes. But it's really that it's about helping students get outcomes and not just a piece of paper, not the pretty piece of paper. That's not the outcome we're looking for. Outcomes that actually matter in work and in life, right? I'm not anti, you know, make people a well-rounded thinker, all those things, right? Those things matter in life. So I care about soft skills too. I'm not just about certain hard skills for very specific workforce stuff, but outcomes and access matter. And I think that those are the things that are making successful schools successful right now. You mentioned marketing in a couple of different ways in that response. And I know you have a marketing background, so I want to probe a little bit more on that. If you were to found this university that you're talking about with its (laughs) friction-free processes and experiences and outcomes for everyone, how would you go about creating marketing buzz for this new university? Oh my gosh, I would have so much fun at Colbert College, right? We would have so much fun. So, you know, I would definitely, I would be learning from some best practices that other institutions are doing right now. And then I would also be wanting to test all kinds of, but I would be looking at things like, how do we give students, so the number one thing that folks interact with, when uh, whether you're a prospective student or a parent or a guardian of somebody's headed off to college, or you're maybe even a high school teacher or a counselor, guidance counselor, the first thing that people interact with is a college or university's website. And so I would be taking a look at how do we make sure that the homepage of the website is all about recruitment, right? So a lot of colleges and universities, they have all kinds of you know news and there's kind of stuff for alums and there's stuff that's sort of signaling to different marketplaces, right? But at the end of the day, the customer that keeps the lights on at every college or university is the tuition paying customer, right? With the exemptions of IVs who could live off the interest of their um, endowments. And by the way, give free tuition to every student every year for the end of time and never run out of money, but won't. But that website is really, really critical, right? And so St. Louis University has a really cool admissions page. It's you at slu.slu.edu. And they do a really cool thing. So they have personalized that first interaction and they've taken away all of the distractions so that they're relentlessly focused, right? So think about when you go anywhere, whether it's Amazon or a website, and they're immediately showing you what are the deals of the day or what's some featured products, right? They don't want to wait for you to sort of figure out like what you're looking for, right? And it's the same thing with colleges and universities. There's a lot of academic programs. You can get lost in the weeds. So St. Louis University did a really interesting thing that they have a very simple form with big fonts and it's really easy and you want to fill it out. In fact, I had to like restrain myself from filling it out because I didn't want to put a fake lead in their system, but I kind of wanted to fill it out. And the form is called, what will your college experience be like? And they ask like three questions. What do you want to study? Where do you call home? 
And where do you see yourself a year after college graduation, right? So they're trying to figure out, are you doing this as a stepping stone to grad school? Are you doing this to then go straight into something? Like, what are you trying to do? And they answer that you answer these very simple questions, and then they help you figure out sort of what the path is that they can help put you on. And that would be a good fit. I'm also a big fan with huge respect to David Meerman Scott, who sort of coined the phrase newsjacking. I think colleges and universities are sometimes doing some good things around newsjacking or trendjacking and figuring out what's happening in the real world outside of our campus and how do we tie ourselves to that. So at the very beginning of the pandemic, so right after, literally within days of the pandemic being declared in mid-March 2020, so in that sort of March-April 2020 era, UCLA did a really interesting thing and they created all these cool Zoom backgrounds because suddenly everybody was at home and everybody was on camera and they created all these really cool Zoom backgrounds with pictures of their campus and they placed uh, paid advertising, sponsored ads all over the internet. So when people were typing in things like, you know, Zoom or virtual classroom or Zoom backgrounds or whatnot, they were finding all of these really cool pictures of UCLA that you could download um, and use as your background. And they were, by the way, telling you about UCLA in the process. And so that was a really interesting thing. So those types of meeting the moment and sort of jumping on the, the bandwagon, I think is really cool. I definitely think that I would um, be effortlessly inclusive if I could be in my marketing. So I would be looking at how do we share stories of inclusivity that again are effortless where it's not even about sort of saying, hey, this is inclusive and shining a light on it. So you know, we get criticisms um, in the marketing of higher ed um, for the photographs that everyone calls three and a tree, right? It's three students standing under a pretty tree on this flowering quad on a university. And those three students are invariably, one is white, one is black, and one has some ambiguous ethnicity where you're like, hmm, maybe she's Persian, right? And you can't quite tell, right? And that is this formula. But what does it look like for us just to have, you know, in our stories about what was going on on our campus to be, you know, talking about a student who's a wheelchair marathoner or, you know, having photos of graduates who are wearing, I saw this at a graduation ceremony I worked at this last year that made me cry. A student, students who are in their caps and gowns and have a beautiful button on their regalia that says first in my family, right? Like that tells a story. And so I would be doing that. I would absolutely be using humor if I was promoting a college or university. I mean, especially if I'm going after 18 year olds, like the sort of stiff formal stuff just doesn't work. It may work for their parents. Carthage College, I'm here down the road from us where I sit on the president's leadership council. Everybody loves the president's dog. The president's house is on campus and he has this like basset hound that's like got this kind of weird, funny personality and he's like, you know, overweight and he's adorable. And so people walk that you can sign up to walk the president's dog. The president's dog is used in their social media promotions. So I would be looking at that kind of stuff. And then I would absolutely be looking to use user generated content. So we were doing this back when I worked at the medical university at Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science. And we were asking our students to write like first year student blogs and just talk about this. I just did some research for a top 50 national research institution and a university and an R1 school. And the number one thing that prospective students told us they were looking for are day in the life videos. And so they're headed to TikTok and Instagram and whatnot. And they're looking for this. You can engineer this. You can keep them authentic, but you can, you know, tell students that you're school, if you do day in the life videos and we think they're cool, we'll help promote them. And if you create some content that we're interested in promoting every time you tell us about some content, a blog post you wrote or whatever that we can share, we'll give you another $15 Starbucks card or something. So there are ways to um, sort of engineer and encourage 
great user-generated content from your current students. And so I would definitely be candid about pain points. So you've got to, in your marketing, talk about the truth. You have to talk about the fact that college is expensive. You have to talk about time to graduation. You know, you have to talk about how hard it is to get in or choose a major or select your favorite dorm. So if you can get candid in your marketing and meet prospective students where they are, I think that you will be more successful than if you had not thought about these strategies. Well, I think Colbert College is well on its way to having a really good marketing (laughs) campaigns. All of this brings us to 2024. What do you see happening this year? Can you give us your top bold predictions for the year? Yeah. Oh, gosh. It'll be fun to come back in 2025 and see if I got any of these right. So I think that for 2024, it's really going to be about adopting big mindset resets. Um, So one, I think the first big mindset reset that those of us who work in um, around or on behalf of higher ed need to be thinking about is that higher education is not an island. So we talked about partnerships and how that's really important. I think a second mindset reset is that your imperative in higher education is a people imperative. So if you aren't showing up to work every day trying to figure out how do I better serve our students, our learners, and how do I better serve our people who run this institution? How do I take really good care of the staff and faculty and administration at this institution? So our imperative institutions is not just so much about programs and degrees and pretty pieces of paper. It's about people. It's about students. It's about staff. It's about faculty. It's about administration. And we've got to figure that out. I think a third important uh, mindset reset is a bias toward action. So higher education historically has been full of big ideas and really, really short on action. And one of my most empowering things that ever happened to me in my career, and I think helped me be so much more successful than I would have been otherwise, is when I was the director of marketing at a graduate business school, my CMO said to me very early on after I was hired, he said, Kate, my bias is toward action. And he said, and what I mean by that is I hired you because I know that you know what you're doing. I hired you because I trust you. And while you and I might make different decisions or do things differently, he said, if I'm not at my desk and you have a question for me, if I'm on a vacation or I'm inaccessible and there's something that our students need from us, our alumni need from us, the world needs from us, and you need to make a decision. He says, I don't want to come back and find out that you did nothing and waited for me. He said, I want you to act. And he said, I want you to act on behalf of our stakeholders and do your very best job in doing that. I have a bias toward action. And I've always loved that phrase. I have a bias toward action. And that's the kind of leader I try to be with my people too, is like, you know, just do it and maybe we'll do it differently next time. So I think that's really important within those mindset resets. You know, we have to be thinking about, you know, focusing on technology adoption to make those opportunities happen and thinking about more retail mindsets, which I know a lot of people hate talking about, but it's true. I would That's prediction number one. So that it's going to, we have to change our minds in order to change higher education. That's the number one thing. I would say a prediction is that we are going to continue to have to figure out how to be more comprehensive and yet focused. And what I mean by that is that this doesn't mean that I think every college and university needs to have 75 majors, right? So there are some institutions that are just business schools or just environmental universities or whatever. But we have to figure out how to respond to the fact that college students are looking at us right now and they're not wanting us to say, well, we either do this or this. They want and. They want everything. They kind of want it all. They sort of have it all college experience. And again, that comes down to, but I want to take some of my classes online and some of them in person, or I want to be able to adjust this way. I want flexibility. So that whole, how do we do more and not necessarily do more with less? I hate that phrase. Like we don't have to do more with less. If we're successful and we're bringing in alternate revenues in various different ways, and, and we don't have to always put that onto our students. Uh, there are 
auxiliary revenue opportunities for colleges and universities. How can we hire more staff? I'm actually helping an institution in Texas right now hire a whole bunch more staff. So it's not about or, but and. And I think that as part of that, it's important for us to realize that while in higher education, it's nice to offer an experience, it's more important that we offer a result. And while it's nice for higher education to improve social mobility for some citizens, it's important that we do it for all citizens. So we're coming back to right to my, my outcomes for everyone, right? So how do we how do we do that? I think that there will be a lot more closures. We started this conversation talking about closures, you know, we're sort of bringing that back here at the end of our conversation. I think there will be a lot more closures. I also think that parents and prospects are going to learn how to shop for a college. Our, our book actually has a section called Seven Mighty Tips um, for Choosing the Right College, where we do some inside baseball to teach people how to choose the right school and how to walk away from the ones that are wrong. I think Gary Stocker's viability tool, college viability tool for assessing who's going to be in business four years from now will continue to be important. And more folks are going to be negotiating their tuition and aid package. So more people are going to be using Mark Salisbury's tuition fit to make sure they're getting the right offers. So I do think that, you know, I think we're going to see fewer people falling for predatory terms for student loans, as I did for my fourth college degree. And, you know, and I think that already underway, of course, is that when we think about modality, online, hybrid, in-person, on-ground, I think that's going to be become irrelevant. It's just a modality, right? We need to be able to do be doing all of it. And it's not about, you know, like, do we go online? Well, it, it, you have to. Not 100%. There, there will continue to be folks who who want to do a residential um, college experience. And, and But by the way, there are students who still want to be able to take some of their coursework from their dorm room. And so how do we how do we think about how do we think about that? So, yeah, I mean, I think that the de- demand for exorbitantly expensive experiences is decreasing. And so figuring now how to make things more affordable. I've been working with institutions that have literally slashed their tuition in half and those institutions are growing and their financials look fantastic. So the price tag is going to start to change in higher ed too. We're going to finally see it start coming down across the board, which is exciting to think about. Great predictions for this year. I have one last question as we're wrapping up here. If you were the leader of a college or university, what would be your New Year's resolution for this year? <laughs> Can I have more than one? I would resolve to blow up the operating model and service of the students. And I would probably hire Dr. Malik Peter Corey at Unity University, who blew up their operating model and their governance model and created these sustainable educational business units and, and run their school as sort of like multiple businesses. It's phenomenal. I'm a huge fan. I would probably hire him to come coach me through it. <laughs> so, so that's probably what my first resolution. I would resolve to blow up the operating model and as the students. I would resolve to reduce committees by 50% or more, and I would hold my faculty and staff to that. You know, again, bias towards action. Can we make a decision? Can we just make the decision and move forward on that decision and operationalize it? Like, do we really need a committee about this? I would resolve to actually take the advice of the alumni, student, parent, and business leader community advisory boards. So why are we having all these meetings with free lunches, whatever, for all these advisory councils, if we never take their advice? So either start taking their advice or dissolve them. I would resolve I would resolve to invest in technology to create more sort of high touch experiences that high tech can enable. I would resolve to stop hiring junior people in admissions and retention roles. I would hire the best sales professionals and the best customer experience professionals that money can buy. Because if at the end of the day, my institution's viability and staying in business is about recruiting students and keeping those learners um, engaged and continuing to pay their tuition bills, the most important people in that institution, is it's not me if I'm the president. It's not me at all. It's the admissions folks and it's the retention folks. And I would not hire junior people. I would get the best 
talent that money could buy. I would also, I would resolve to relentlessly ask myself, could this meeting be an email? <laughs> and could this full-time staff role be a more talented contractor? And so I would be thinking a lot about that. And I would my I would also have a final resolution to devote at least 40% of my time to external relationship management and workforce development efforts that really enable innovative programs at my institution and to produce graduates who fill the needs um, of the area employers. Well, if you did all those resolutions, you'd be very busy. <laughs> I would be very busy, but I love them. Yes, I think we would be very happy with the results. Absolutely. For sure. Kate, thank you so much for being here today. And I'm sure some of our listeners are going to reach out, learn more about what you can offer and your work. So I'll be sure to include your LinkedIn profile as well as your book website on our show notes. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having me. To support the cause of the affordable college experience, visit us at highlevelleadership.com. Read our blog and join our email list to get connected. Follow us and leave a positive review on your favorite podcast app. Let's get down to college business.